Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't even need to ask you to sit anymore. You just do it. The Son of Man must be lifted up. What do you think of when you hear that phrase? I, I immediately think of the exaltation, the worship of Jesus Christ. Praying and preaching and singing about how great Jesus is. Like in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Likewise, Peter tells his readers to honor Christ the Lord as holy. And John the Baptist says that he must decrease while Christ must increase. Jesus must be exalted The Son of Man must be lifted up. And that's, I think, subconsciously the kind of lifting up I assumed we'd be hearing about when Aya suggested that the choir sing a song called High and Lifted Up as an Offertory this morning. If you want to look at the words, we've printed them in the bulletin for you this morning. But you'll notice that they go in a different direction immediately. In the wilderness we wander, bitten by our sin. We cry out for resurrection, finding none within. But it's really verse 3 that drives the point home. Gazing at my bleeding Savior, lifted, crucified. There I see my plague and poison traded for his life. My bleeding Savior, lifted, crucified. My bleeding Savior lifted up. This is a vision of lifting up that is altogether different than the exaltation that I naturally expect. That kind of lifting up happens in a throne room. This kind of lifting up apparently begins in the wilderness. It actually makes sense, though, that we begin in the wilderness because this is the second Sunday of Lent and we're continuing our series of readings from the wilderness. Last week, of course, we read about Jesus' 40 days spent in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and how in the face of that temptation he invoked the word of God. He was able to submit to God's word in the face of temptation in a way that Adam and Eve were not there Their faith faltered while Christ's faith was firm. Today, we're in the desert again. We read a passage from the book of Numbers, which also takes place in a wilderness. And like Jesus in the desert with Satan, our story this morning takes place in the context of hunger, fear, and possible death. Now, it's easy to skip over Numbers. Uh, Numbers may be the most boring book name in the entire Bible, 
Uh, the, story, the story of Numbers, though, is a profound one. The Hebrew name for the book of Numbers means in the wilderness. And that's where the story of number takes place. It's the epic tale of the journey of the Israelites from Mount Sinai, where they receive the law from God, to the brink of the promised land. This is a journey that should take about two weeks on foot and ends up taking the people 40 years. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness that we read about last week is a reflection of of the people's 40 years of wandering in this wilderness between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land. And our first reading this morning from Numbers chapter 21 comes right smack dab in the middle of their wandering. Now, the people have by this point totally had enough of being in the desert. And they start uh, what scripture calls, quote, speaking against the Lord and against Moses. Now, that's a polite euphemism. They're cursing God and cursing Moses. They're slandering. They are riotous. They think that it would have been better if they had just stayed in brutal slavery in Egypt rather than being brought out into the desert to die. In chapter 14, they talk seriously about mutiny, appointing another leader to take them back to Egypt. Now, of course, all this time... Behind the scenes, God has been graciously providing for his people. First, of course, there is their personal freedom. They have been rescued from their captivity in Egypt. And then food has been provided for them when they were hungry. But they're human, though, so they're not satisfied. They don't like the food. They're grumbling. They feel like they'd have been better off on their own. And so the Lord takes a break from being gracious to them, although he'll go right back to being gracious to them in a moment, as we'll see. But he takes a break and does what the Lord does when his people decide they don't need him. He reminds them of their need. And so in Numbers 21, he sends fiery serpents among the people, and many are killed, realizing their sinfulness, the people come to Moses and confess. This is the great and terrible judgmental work of God, the revealing of sin. The law, says St. Paul, was given to show our sinfulness. For us, the Holy Spirit, in this time of living after Jesus, serves to convict us of our sinfulness. And this event in Numbers 21 is, again, God's convicting work played out in narrative form. The serpents serve to show the Israelites their sin. And the people do what you do when you become aware of sin in your life. They confess. They repent. They say, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They acknowledge that they've turned away from God and they ask to be saved. Now, this language might sound familiar to you because we say a version of it every single week as we confess our sins. We lament our many sins and offenses, we say, which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your righteous anger against us. And then we ask God to have mercy on us 
for Jesus Christ's sake. We are week by week replaying the drama from Numbers 21. And as always, God's grace for his people wins the day. And the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. And this is the lifting up to which Jesus compares his own lifting up. When he tells Nicodemus in John 3 how a sinful people can be saved. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lifted up and nailed to a pole in the context of suffering and death. Mercy from God for Jesus Christ's sake. So we have these two visions of Jesus being lifted up, which seem at first like opposites, but which are actually two sides of the same coin. And they do seem opposed, right? One seems like actual exaltation, a king on a throne being regarded as higher than everything and everyone else, worthy of worship and praise. Therefore, remember, says St. Paul, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That's one kind of being lifted up. The other kind seems like actual, not exaltation, but execution. A criminal being nailed to a piece of wood worthy of mockery and scorn. And yet, for us sinners, these two things go together, hand in hand. In fact, the one is the reason for the other. Remember, this is what we celebrated on Christ the King Sunday. One Christ, two kinds of kings. Yes, Jesus is exalted. He is worthy of praise. He is lifted up in that way. But it's what he chooses to do with his station, with his standing, with his worthiness that means everything to us. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which along with the following verse, verse 9, which I just read a moment ago, actually forms the glue that connects these two ideas, these two different ways of being lifted up together. St. Paul ties them together explicitly. Jesus did not count equality with God, which he deserved a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He laid down his exalted status. 
Therefore, says Paul, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is lifted up as the name above every name because he was lifted up on a tree, beaten and broken for sinners. Jesus is absolutely exalted. It's what he chooses to do with his exaltation that is such profound good news for us sinners. He is exalted by being laid low. He is exalted because he is laid low. And so in thanksgiving and in worship, we lift him up. One of the fascinating things about this story of poisonous serpents in the wilderness is that when God decides to save the people, he has Moses put an image of a poisonous serpent, the very thing that is killing the people up on the pole. That's what people look at. That's how they're saved. They look at an image of the thing that is killing them and they are rescued. This too is a foreshadowing of the way that God will work through Jesus, lifted up and bloodied on the cross. As John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. God gave his only son. That simple phrase carries so much weight. How was this giving done? St. Paul said that Jesus who knew no sin, who was sinless, became sin so that we sinners might become the righteousness of God. The righteous one became sin so that we sinners could become righteous. Jesus, lifted up on a pole, became the thing that was killing us so that we could be saved. He became sin to save you. This is what high and lifted up means. Yes, Jesus is exalted. He is high and lifted up in our songs, in our prayers, and in our worship. But he is high and lifted up as a king because he was high and lifted up as a sinner as the sin of the world. He was made sin, though he was sinless, shouldering the full weight of the sin of the world to save us, the snake-bitten sinners, who would have died if he wasn't there. So join us as we do what the snake-bitten Israelites did in the desert. As we confess as we acknowledge our faithlessness and the rightness of God's judgment. Join us as we ask God to be merciful for Jesus Christ's sake. And then join us as we turn our eyes upward. Look at the pole. Fix your eyes there on the cross, on the sacrifice, 
on the one who was high and lifted up for you. As our choir will sing in a minute, look upon him and believe he's redeemed us. Look upon him and believe he will heal us. Look upon him for his scars show he loves us. Look upon him and live. Amen.